Bow heads with me once more to ask God's blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, your word is clear and true and powerful. But we are confused. We are often false and unfaithful. We are weak. And we need now the same Spirit who breathed out your word to breathe on us afresh, to fill us, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our minds, to soften our hearts to the word that your Spirit breathed out here in Scripture. And so we pray now that you would sharpen our appetite for your word, that we would be hungry together to eat this meal with you, that we would feed on your word, that it would be good to us, and that you would make it good for us. For Jesus' sake, amen. We admire people who speak truth to power. Of course, it's easier to respect speaking truth to power when the truth spoken is already celebrated by the majority. But what happens to our admiration when the truth spoken, contradicts cultural consensus. We're going to see that this morning in Acts 4, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 4, 1 through 22. We're going to read the story, I'm going to give the point, and then we'll see some applications at the end. We'll read it piecemeal as we go through. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I begin reading for us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. You'll remember the context is that Peter had looked at the man who was born lame. He was begging outside the temple. Peter and John were going into the temple at the hour of prayer. He was begging alms. They didn't have any money to give him, but what they did have, they gave him. And Peter said, rise and walk. He rose and walked. In the name of the Lord Jesus, and that makes the power players of the religious culture nervous, threatened, and angry. We see the aftermath here in chapter 4. Peter preaches a Christ-centered sermon as a result of the attention that was gained through the healing. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, Luke relates the aftermath. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000 from the previous 3,000 that we read of at the end of chapter 2. So Peter and John 
notice, are still speaking to the people. (laughs) They're still preaching Jesus as the power that healed the paralytic in Acts 3. They're not done with their sermon. They're in the middle of calling everyone to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus from an apostolically awesome sermon on Jesus from the Old Testament prophets. I mean, this is a moment when all of a sudden these priests with the temple police chief as muscle bum rush the apostles mid-sermon. I mean, just imagine this. Now, there's no head count, but there's got to be at least five guys confronting Peter and John. There's plural priests, several Sadducees, and the captain of the temple guard. And these guys are hot under the collar. They're not making a secret of it. They're not kind of ducking their heads and kind of tiptoeing their way up to the pulpit. They are jogging. And they're upset. Greatly annoyed because the apostles are teaching the people and announcing in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So the priests are annoyed simply because the apostles are teaching the people. Point blank. End of story. When the teaching role was supposed to be for the priests. That's encroachment. Infringing on priestly turf. Teaching in the temple. The Sadducees are annoyed at the resurrection stuff, the content of the preaching, because they rejected the resurrection. I had a high school Bible teacher, because I grew up in a Christian school, and he always used to tell us, the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. That's how you remember what they taught. I'll never forget that. I was like 11. So they're annoyed at the content of the preaching, The priests are annoyed just that the apostles are teaching at all. They're like, hey, that's our job, and you're doing it on our turf. But both the priests and the Sadducees are offended that Peter is teaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, since neither the priests nor the Sadducees were Jesus fans. So they lay hands on the apostles, that's the literal language, which we'll come back later, and they put them in custody for the night, since it's already late, maybe figuring... A night in jail will sober up the Jesus freaks. But by the time they arrest him, the damage had already been done because another 2,000 men who heard the word had already believed the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection and had been added to the church's number. Verses 5 through 7. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? So the sun comes up next day in verse 5. Priests bring out the temple brass, the big guns. Rulers, elders, scribes with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, all the members of the high priest family. And they positioned themselves in their traditional half round to stand the apostles right in the middle. That is intimidation for interrogation. This is a formal deposition. And they want to know, by what power, by what name did you do this? 
How did you heal the lame man in chapter 3? We demand an answer. By what power did you do that? What are you into? So the leaders think they're putting the screws to the apostles, pitching them high and inside, a little chin music to back them off the plate. Their question may assume the same things they assumed of Jesus. You cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's their mentality. Hey, how are you doing that? Because we don't approve. And this kind of thing doesn't just happen every day. But the way they phrase it may indicate a suspicion of pagan or magical influence. By what power or in what name did you do this? Whose name did you invoke as a magical incantation to heal that paralytic? Because we know that stuff goes on all the time. Was it the Greek god Asclepius, the mythical patron of physicians and the god of healing? Was it a pagan goddess like Isis, known for restoring health to those who had lost hope in doctors? Is it Persian magic that you're into? Zoroastrianism? Or maybe it's some manipulation of numerology from Pythagoras. You know, sorcery is a capital crime in the Mosaic Law, fellas. So give it up, and maybe we'll cut you a deal. Why don't you plead guilty, and maybe we'll go lenient on the sentencing? What are you guys into? What name? That question, whose name, what name, is actually thematic in Acts. And it's a point of emphasis for Luke. The name of Jesus, his person, position, and power comes up time and time and time again in the narrative. I could give you all the references, but that would be to list 20 or 25 of them. The name of Jesus, this name, his name. 20, 25 times in the book of Acts, referring to Jesus. Maybe climaxing in chapter 19, verses 13 to 18, with the sons of Siva misusing Jesus' name in a botched exorcism. Whose name did you use to heal the paralytic? What power? What cult? What God in the pantheon have you worshipped in violation of the first commandment? But for the apostles, this question does not come in as a fastball high and inside. To them, it's coming in like a hanging curveball, and they're swinging away. They're swinging for the fences. Hey, this is a layup, man. Here we go. Verses 8 to 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed... If that's what this is about, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Mm. That's some boldness right there. That's some boldness. 
And crucial for Peter's testimony is how Luke introduces it. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. This is what the Spirit does when he fills a person. The Spirit fills people in order to enable them to testify to the Son. He will glorify me, Jesus said in John 16, 14. Further, the Spirit fills Peter in order to preach a Christ-centered sermon from the Old Testament to misguided Jewish religious power. Rulers of the people and elders. Respectful, but fearless. And contradicting everything they thought they knew about the Old Testament. The Spirit of God fills the man of God with the power of God in order to speak the truth of God and overcome the fear of man. The Spirit's fullness flushes out the fear of man with the Spirit's own commitment to glorify Jesus, no matter how it may humiliate self. The fullness of God's Spirit fills the mouth of man with the Son of God. And notice, Peter doesn't brag about how full of the Spirit he is, either now or when he healed the man before. He credits, preaches, and exalts Jesus because he is filled with the Spirit of Jesus. People who are filled with the Spirit do not talk about their experience of being filled with the Spirit. They talk about the person, position, and power of Jesus. That's how you tell. Verse 9, Peter notes the irony of the moment. Look, if this is a legal deposition about a good work of healing a paralytic, I mean, let's just get that straight from the outset here, brothers, friends, countrymen. This is about a good work. This deposition is not about a crime. Okay? But he goes on, if this is about the means by which this man was healed or literally saved in the original language. Now, the translation healed is fine. That's what happened. It's accurate. But that verb, saved, in the original language is a play on words with Peter's sermon on Psalm 118 later. So, if this is about the power that saved a paralytic from his paralysis... Then Peter testifies in verses 10 to 12, Let it be known to you, rulers, elders, scribes, chief priests, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this one, this man stands before you in full health. This one stands. This paralytic is standing. (laughs) Paralytic, standing. Name of Jesus. This one is the stone, the one rejected by you, the builders, who has become the head corner, and there is salvation in no other. This guy was saved by this name, and there is salvation in no other. You see how that works now? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which it is necessary for us to be saved. The name is the person, position, and power of Jesus as Christ, Messiah, risen from the dead. 
pouring out His Spirit on His church. And how fitting that the name by which the paralytic was saved is Jesus, which means Savior. This Jesus is the historical Jesus of Nazareth. Absurd as that seems to these cosmopolitan elites of Jerusalem who viewed rural Nazareth as a backwater. Peter testifies that this Savior whose name saved the paralytic is the Jesus whom these leaders crucified. I mean, you've you got to have some guts to say that because these leaders have the religious authority to string Peter up too. And this is the same Jesus whom God raised bodily from the dead. And it is that bodily resurrection of that Savior, Jesus, that is the power by which the body of the paralyzed man stands before them now, saved into health and wholeness and ability to stand. The man himself is People's Exhibit A in the deposition. He's standing right there beside Peter in the middle of all these gathered elites. And you see how the man's physical healing could not have been if Jesus' own physical bodily resurrection never was. A metaphorical resurrection would only produce a metaphorical healing. Only Jesus' physical, organic resurrection could produce this physical, organic healing. This one, this Jesus of Nazareth, Peter says, this crucified, buried, risen, ascended Messiah, he is the one Psalm 118.22 announced as the stone rejected by the builders only to be set as the head cornerstone of God's new living temple, the church. Notice too, Peter never does mention himself as the conduit of Christ's power. Peter does not even say, Oh, you want to know how I did that? I did it through Jesus. He doesn't put it that way. And he doesn't say, Jesus did it through me. Jesus did it through me. He completely disappears from his own grammar and syntax. There is no first-person singular speech here at all. Peter doesn't think this is about Peter. But there is second person, plural, speech. You all. The one rejected by you, the builders. You know, there's a lot of talk in seminary and preaching circles that would say, hey, you you shouldn't use the word you in sermons, because that makes people feel a little bit... I hope they never invite the Apostle Peter into that classroom. I don't think they could have taken Peter's preaching. You did that. You crucified him. He's the one rejected by you. You rejected Jesus. You rejected the cornerstone. You thought 
the cornerstone was useless and you rejected him. But he's the one who healed this man and he's risen from the dead. Peter finds these Jewish leaders in Psalm 118, all right, but they're not the persecuted. They're the persecutors. They're the perpetrators of the persecution. They're not the religious people rejected by the world. That's not how Peter understands the religious leaders of his day in Psalm 118. They're the religious people who rejected their own cornerstone as if he were useless. But this one is the stone. Peter identifies Jesus as the rejected stone from Psalm 118, now cemented as the most foundational stone in God's new temple. Everything else is built on him. How did this Jesus become the head cornerstone? It was through his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation to David's throne in heaven. That's how. That's why Peter thinks Psalm 118 is so relevant. Keep your finger in Acts 4 and turn back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a salvation song. Psalm 118.5 Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Psalm 118, 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. This prominent note of salvation in Psalm 118 is the reason Peter uses salvation language after he's already quoted Psalm 118.22. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Peter says. It's also the reason Peter frames the whole healing as a salvation in the first place in verse 9. The salvation healing of the paralytic in Jesus' name illustrates the salvation from sin that we find only in Jesus' name. The paralytic was saved by Jesus' name, proving there is salvation from sin in no other name. But Psalm 118 is also a resurrection song. Stay there in Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 17. I shall not die, but I shall live. Resurrection. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. And yet Psalm 118 is also an ascension song in verses 19 and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. That is true, first and foremost, of Jesus when he ascends into the gates of heaven after his resurrection. Psalm 118 is also a persecution song. Verse 10, All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord I cut them off. It's also a fear of man psalm. Verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And as such, Peter was applying Psalm 118 first to Jesus as the persecuted one who cut off his enemies at his resurrection. Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders. And Peter says, by the way, you guys are the builders who rejected the stone that became the head corner. But to be that bold, 
Peter must also be applying Psalm 118 to himself to overcome his own fear of man in order to speak the gospel to truth to power. The Lord is on my side. Peter must believe. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can these priests and Sadducees do to me? That's where you get gospel boldness. The Lord is on my side. It doesn't come from temperament. It doesn't come from stubbornness. It comes from faith in the presence and power and promises of God. Jesus overcame first in my place for my sins, and now I overcome in His presence by His power for His name, Jesus, then, is the heir to all the promises of David, represented in Psalm 118 and elsewhere, and by commission of Jesus Christ, the apostles are the heirs to Jesus' authority in the church, thus replacing the rulers, Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. Oh, it's on. It's on. Because of all this, verse 12 is true. Just as Jesus was the only power that saved the paralytic, so Jesus is the only name that can save anyone from the power and penalty of their sins. Bracket, parentheses, Moses isn't going to save you guys. This is the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. The truth of salvation in Jesus excludes salvation by any other name or religion, or work, or morality. And it rules out anonymous Christians, as if someone could be saved without hearing or knowing the name of the Savior, which is all too popular in missions praxis today. No, you have to know and trust the name of Jesus alone to be saved. Because there is salvation in no other name. Notice, it's not there's salvation in no other concept or idea. It's no other name. Verses 13 to 17, the leaders see a few things. Verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. What? (laughs) So these leaders see two things. First, they see the apostles, Peter and John. What they see is their boldness in spite of their lack of education. Peter and John don't have an MDiv. They have no masters of divinity. They have no theology degree. They have no bachelor's. They have no diploma. They didn't even get their GED. These guys went to trade school for fishing straight out of their bar mitzvah. 
Yet they had been with Jesus. Jesus had taught them how to read, interpret, and understand the Old Testament. And their interpretation of Psalm 118 amazed these seminary professors and even the top brass of the temple. Then in verse 14, they also see the healed paralytic standing, exclamation point, (laughs) healed paralytic standing right in front of them in the courtroom as people's evidence, exhibit A, strong as an ox, I mean, you got to wonder, like, what was the look on that guy's face, the healed paralytic, right? Like, he's standing in the middle of all these religious leaders who don't believe in the power that just healed him. I mean, does he have a wry grin on his face? Is he like, this is awkward? I mean, I am standing. Is he doing like a Jewish river dance to kind of like, you got to, look, look what I can do. I mean, I'm the guy who went leaping and praising God into the temple. Still leaping. I mean, is he doing one of these? I think I would. I would be hard not to do that as that guy. I would want to do that. Whatever the case, they see the apostles and the former paralytic, and they have no rebuttal to Peter's defense. In fact, Peter did not just make a defense. He brought a countercharge against the prosecution for the judicial murder of Jesus. And that catches these guys flat-footed. So they ask for a recess. <laughs> whoa, 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 time out. So they watch the apostles and the healthy paralytic walk out of the courtroom. Ironic. They're, they're watching the healed paralytic walk out of the courtroom so that they can decide what to do about this. <laughs> I mean, come on. So they deliberate as judge and jury, and we get to be a fly on the wall, and it looks an awful lot like a kangaroo court behind closed doors. What do we do with these men? For indeed it is evident that the sign done through them has already become known to all those living in Jerusalem, and even we can't deny it. I mean, it's comical. They got nothing. (laughs) So all they can resort to in verse 17 is... Intimidation. In order that it may not spread any further among the people, let's warn them no longer to speak in the name of this man. Mm. No more speaking about Jesus. I mean, we can't deny the facts. The evidence is on their side. Everybody knows it. And public opinion is against us, at least for the time being. Still, we can't let this absurdity go unchecked among the masses, so let's bring them back in and tell them, quit preaching Jesus. Okay. Ready, break. Open the door, let them back in. You pick it up, verses 18 to 20. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I mean, they're taking this really seriously. No more of that. But Peter and John answered them, well, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they open the doors. The apostles and the paralytic walk back in. They give them a blanket prohibition not to speak or teach in Jesus' name, thinking that's that, because, of course, they're the religious authorities operating within their jurisdiction, but it does not go according to their script. Because in verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. (laughs) Go ahead. I mean, (laughs) For we are not able to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now that, notice, is not civil disobedience. That is about church, that's not about church and state. That's 
that's not disobeying the king or the emperor. They're disobeying the priests. This is religious ecclesiastical disobedience. And look at the contrast between the apostles and the priests. The apostles are fishermen. The priests are academic elites. The apostles want everyone to know that the name of Jesus healed the paralytic, but in verse 16, the fact that everyone knows about this healing is exactly what the priests lament. The apostles know exactly what to say in response to the gag order, while the priests have no rebuttal to apostolic testimony. The priests have nothing left to say, while the apostles can't stop talking. The leaders denied Jesus justice. Listen to this, verse 16 The priests are unable to deny the miracle. We can't deny it. That's the verb that they use. But that verb deny is exactly what they did to Jesus himself in chapter 3. They denied Jesus justice, but now they are unable to deny the reality of the paralytic's healing in Jesus' name to whom they had denied justice. And by the end of the scene, it's the priests whose hands are tied while the apostles walk out scot-free with the paralytic of all people. The apostles feel no compunction to obey the priests while the priests are helpless to detain the apostles even though the priests have all the political power on their side. But the priests can't hold them, notice, because they found no charge to hold them on. It reminds you of Pilate wanting to release Jesus in Luke 23 because he found no fault in him. Same verb. Besides, revival was breaking out because of this healing. If they'd have held the apostles any longer, the revival might have soured into a revolt. The healing was indisputable. This guy was 40. This is a full-grown man. His paralysis was patented. He was a recognized person among the locals, and his testimony would stand up in court. This guy was 40. This happened. Even the prosecution had to admit they didn't have a case. Jesus has power. His enemies cannot deny it, and his apostles cannot stop preaching it. What's more, this exact kind of exchange had already happened between these religious leaders, and Jesus himself in Luke 20. Turn to Luke 20. I almost, I almost called an audible sitting right there. I almost changed the New Testament reading to Luke 20. Like during the prayer of confession. So I thought, man, you got to see this. There's a big similarity. Turn to Luke 20. This exact kind of exchange in Acts 4 between the leaders and Peter and John had already happened between these religious leaders and Jesus himself in Luke 20. It's remarkable. Luke used the same verb for their confrontation of Jesus as he uses here. They confronted Jesus. They came up to him while Jesus was still teaching. And they confronted Peter and John while they were still speaking. They asked Jesus the same question in Luke 20, verse 2, that they asked Peter and John here, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is the one who gave you this authority? That's the same question. By what power? By what name? By what authority? Moreover, Jesus himself quoted Psalm 118 to them in Luke 20, just like Peter quotes Psalm 118 to them here. 
The leaders even try to lay their hands on Jesus after he teaches the parable of the wicked tenants, just like the leaders did lay their hands on Peter and John in Acts 4 to put them in prison for a night. Like teacher, like disciples. It's no wonder these leaders recognize Peter and John as having been with Jesus. In the immortal words of the esteemed Yankee theologian Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again. This happened already. And Luke is setting it up to show you, look, they're doing the same thing to the apostles as he did to Jesus. The point of all this is we must preach and obey Jesus as exclusive Savior King, rejected by men, but exalted by God. Simple as that. We must preach and obey Jesus as exclusive Savior and King, rejected by men, but exalted by God. I want to give us some implications before I go to applications. Implications are things that are true because that point is true. Implications. What else is true because of the truth of this text? Well, first implication, no one can save us from our paralysis and sin except Jesus. No one can save us from our paralysis and sin except Jesus. You and I are not Peter and John in this story, at least not initially. You and I are the paralytic. This healing illustrates the power of Jesus to save helpless sinners whose sin debilitates them from serving God and disbars them from entering heaven. Guess what the paralytic contributed to his healing? Nothing. He contributed his paralysis. Jesus does not help those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. Jesus saves those who cannot help themselves, who cannot be saved by their own merits or by the medicine or magic or mantras of others. Only Jesus can save you from the penalty and power paralysis of your sin. Second implication, elite rejection of Jesus does not make him any less savior or king. Elite rejection of Jesus, rejection of Jesus by social, cultural, even religious elites, academic elites, does not make Jesus any less savior and king. And we like to flatter ourselves in the 21st century by thinking that we live in such a unique time when coastal elites, L.A., New York, reject Jesus. Poor us. Poor us and fly over state Illinois. We have to live in a time where the elites reject Jesus. Has any other time been so difficult? (laughs) We should get over ourselves. Cultural elites, even religious elites, have always rejected Jesus. It has ever been thus. But Jesus' identity and authority is not contingent upon our acceptance of him, whether we are elites or not. 
Jesus is objective, not subjective. He is eternal and free and sovereign. He is not contingent on your opinion of him. Most importantly, he is the one appointed by God, not elected by man to be judged of the living and the dead. Luke will quote Paul later in Acts 17. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is not judge of all men or savior of all men by some Rousseauian social contract. Give me a break. God appointed Jesus as savior and judge. The cosmos is not a democracy. It's a monarchy ruled and judged by the creator himself. And the freedom of will that matters most is not yours. It is God's. Your freedom is only a subset of his. And as long as you buck against that, you are not believing in the true God. Because you don't think he's sovereign. You think you're sovereign. And you think God's freedom is a subset of yours. Jesus is Savior and King, even though the leaders of his own people rejected him. And that is still true today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Changing eras and the fluctuating spirit of the age neither change nor challenge Jesus. He is. And he is the one with whom we will have to reckon on the last day. And we implore you in his name, be saved by him now. Submit to him now, or you will be submitted by him on the day of the Lord. Third implication, to deny the physicality of Jesus' resurrection is to deny the power of the gospel itself. To deny the physicality, the bodiliness of the resurrection of Jesus is to deny the power of the gospel itself. Why is there healing power in Jesus' name to begin with? Because the physicality of his resurrection defeated the powers of sin and death. That's why. He can heal others because he himself is risen bodily from the dead, not just metaphorically or mystically or mythologically. If Jesus were not risen bodily from the dead, this healing does not happen in his name period. But it did happen to the great frustration of the elites who felt threatened by Jesus. This miracle did not happen by the power of positive thinking or by the new thought dynamic of positive confession. Just speak your preferred reality into existence and slap Jesus' name on it like a Nike logo. Jesus! It's really just positive thinking. You cannot be a Christian and deny the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. You can deny the physicality of Jesus' resurrection and still be a religious liberal in a mainline denomination like the United Church of Christ or the United Methodist Church or the Episcopalian Church or the Evangelical Lutheran Church or the PCUSA. You can do that. You can still be a member in good standing in those churches and not believe in the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. Or you could affirm Jesus' resurrection bodily, and remain in those denominations as a true Christian. going to be very difficult, but conceptually it's conceivable. 
But what you cannot do is deny the physicality of Jesus' resurrection and be a Christian. The old Princeton theologian J. Gresham Machen said it a hundred years ago. There's Christianity, and then there's Protestant liberalism that denies such things as Jesus' physical resurrection. And these are not two versions of the same religion. And churches that disagree on that are not two denominations in the same religion. They are two different religions entirely. Why? Because truth is one, not many. And truth is absolute, not relative. It is objective, not subjective. You, you are subjective. And you are subject to objective truth, whether you like it or not. And you live like that in every other area of your life except your religion. It is objective truth that if I step out onto St. Charles Street as these cars go by, I'm going to get hit by one of them, most likely. And if I get hit by a car, it's not just going to go through me. <laughs> it's going to go over me. And I'm going to be submitted to it. It's the same with your relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot disagree with him and not be conquered by him. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. No other name. That is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. To believe in Jesus means you do not believe that salvation can come through any other religion or any other doctrine of Jesus than the biblical doctrine of his divine nature, virgin birth, full divinity, full humanity, his supernatural miracles, his sinless life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to God's right hand as our prophet, priest, and king, the one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Christ Jesus. You've got to believe all of that or none of it. There's no halfway. Other religions cannot make anyone right with God because they have no God-accepted atonement mechanism like the blood of Jesus, the God-man. Salvation from sin's penalty and power is exclusive to those who trust in Jesus. And the Jesus you believe in is either this Jesus, who is the only name under heaven and earth, well, by which men must be saved, or it's another Jesus. As Paul noticed, was being preached as early as 2 Corinthians 11. But he has either risen bodily from the dead or he is not. It's not a both and, it's an either or. And because Jesus is risen bodily from the dead, his authority is neither relative nor contingent, it is absolute. Now, as soon as I say that, the unbeliever will say to me, okay, okay, okay. But why doesn't Jesus just do a miracle for me to prove himself to me so that I can believe? I mean, I would believe if he would just do a miracle for me. If all this stuff is so true, why isn't it obvious to everybody? And why doesn't he make it obvious to everybody? To which I say, hey man, he already did make it obvious. Read the Bible. 
You want to look at miracles? Read the Bible. That's where they're recorded. Besides, seeing and even admitting that a miracle happened is neither necessary nor sufficient to create saving faith in Jesus. Let's say Jesus did come down here and perform a miracle for you. Then what? Do you really think you would believe? Would that really solve your problem? No. That's not just my opinion. That's Jesus' own opinion. Jesus tells you in Scripture, (laughs) even if I worked a miracle for you, you would find a way to discredit it. Because you don't really want to believe. Because you don't really want to submit. You don't really want to repent. Seeing a 40-year-old congenital paralytic walking and leaping and praising God did not convince these religious elites that Jesus was the personal power who healed him. Look at Acts 4. Is seeing a miracle sufficient for believing? Apparently not. Never has been. Seeing was not believing even during Jesus' earthly ministry. Luke 16, 31. Jesus himself tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man ends up in hell. Lazarus, the poor man who ate scraps from the rich man's table, ends up with Abraham in heaven. The rich man says from hell to Abraham in heaven, I beg you, send Lazarus back from the dead to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. I'm not sending Lazarus back to your family from the dead because your family has Scripture. They don't need Lazarus to come back from the dead. They have the Old Testament, which is able to make you wise unto salvation in Christ Jesus, Paul tells Timothy. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You're wrong, sinner. They won't be convinced if someone goes back to them from the dead. You're wrong, Jesus says. You're wrong. In fact, Jesus did rise from the dead, and they still did not believe in him. And neither do you, unbeliever. So no other miracle is going to do it for you. So why don't you try reading Scripture? There's plenty of miracles for you to believe in there. Plenty. But of course, it's the academic elites who want to undermine the reality of the very miracles that are attesting to Jesus as being the Son of God. Because of course, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen. Friend, you don't disbelieve because you've never seen a miracle. You disbelieve for the same reason these religious elites did not believe, because Jesus threatens your perceived power and control over your own life. That's why you don't believe. Quit playing games. Next implication. When the Spirit fills a Christian to preach the Old Testament, that Christian preaches Jesus from the Old Testament. 
Peter, filled with the Spirit, spoke a Christ-centered sermon from Psalm 118, not an Israel-centered sermon from, Christ, from Psalm 118. Why? Two reasons. First, because Jesus himself said of the Holy Spirit, John 16, he will glorify me. Spirit always glorifies Jesus. So a Christless sermon is evidence of a sermon devoid of God's Spirit, no matter how much of the preacher's spirit went into it. No matter how spirited the Christian preaches, that sermon is devoid of God's Spirit if it's not Christ-centered, even from the Old Testament. You're not listening to a Spirit-filled preacher in the tradition of the New Testament apostles if he is not preaching Jesus from the Old Testament, no matter how textual he might be. Second, because the Spirit who glorifies Jesus is the same Spirit who breathed out Old Testament Scripture through the prophets to begin with. When the Spirit fills a Christian to preach the Old Testament, that Christian preaches Jesus from the Old Testament because the Old Testament was breathed out by the Spirit and the Spirit always glorifies Jesus. And therefore, the Spirit was glorifying Jesus when he was breathing out the Old Testament initially. You see the logic? The Spirit who glorifies Jesus was already glorifying Jesus when he was breathing out Old Testament Scripture before Jesus ever walked the earth. And that is why you don't have to read Jesus back into the Old Testament Scriptures. You read him straight from the Old Testament Scripture because the Spirit who glorifies Jesus is the one who breathed out all Scripture, both Old Testament and New, so that all Scripture testifies to Jesus inherently and organically, not just derivatively or secondarily or retrospectively. final implication, God's word cannot be constrained by human will or law. This is one of the major emphases in the whole book of Acts. God's word prevails over every obstacle and enemy raised up against it. The gospel just keeps on going and keeps on growing, despite its opposition. The apostles don't back down just because the religious authorities don't like the message of Christ crucified and risen. And the gospel doesn't become untrue or lose its convincing, convicting, converting power just because powerful people in church and government hate it. The hands of the gospel enemies are the ones who are tied here, not the hands of the apostles. And even when you put an apostle in prison for his preaching of the gospel, what does he say from his prison cell? 2 Timothy 2, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Ha <laughs> ha! You put me in prison, but you will never put the word of God in prison. You will never imprison the gospel, no matter how many preachers you kill. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The word of God is never bound, even if its preachers are. A few applications before we close. Christian, you can be a faithful, effective evangelist without a formal education. The apostles had no PhD, no master's, no bachelor's, no diploma. They are blue-collar tradesmen. Mike Rowe would have loved these guys. He'd have gotten a kick out of them. Dirty jobs. That's Peter, James, and John. And look, they're running circles around the Sadducees. Christian, don't be intimidated by people with academic degrees. You can understand Scripture. Read it, study it. Pray that God's Spirit would give you understanding. Spend time with Jesus in Scripture. 
Let him train you by his spirit to understand the Bible, to be bold, to proclaim the gospel over against the objections of people who think they're too smart to believe it. If you read and pray your way consistently through Scripture over the years and you submit yourself to a Christ-centered preaching ministry of the gospel in a faithful local church, then you can become like David in Psalm 119.99. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? How? For your testimonies are my meditation. That's how you get there. Three years with Jesus, capped by a 40-day seminar on Christ-centered reading of the Old Testament, and Peter is confounding career priests. Learn to commune with Jesus in prayerful meditation on Scripture. Put yourself under a ministry that preaches Jesus from Scripture like the apostles did, and your own understanding and boldness as an evangelist can flourish. Next application, the church canon does grow amid persecution. You should be encouraged by that. The apostles get publicly interrupted, confronted, and arrested in verses 1 to 3. They're subject to wrongful detainment, intimidation, interrogation, yet the church grows in in verse 4. It's always been this way. The maturation and numerical growth of the church has very often gone hand in hand with cultural persecution of the church and opposition to the church. Our guy doesn't have to be in the White House for the church to flourish. Do you believe that? When the church is being persecuted and growing, it should not be surprising. It's normal. It's historic. It's how the church started. Other, our experience of, as, as a Christian church in this life is always going to be a mixed bag. Spiritual and numerical growth amid periodic social and political harassment. We have to learn to live with that, not just try to outvote it. And to rejoice our way through it together. But that means we cannot afford to be bickering with each other inside the church. We've got to stay together because the world is trying to break us apart. And it means that we cannot get in timid or weak need every time the world threatens our well-being. Or every time we think, oh man, we might lose our tax exemption. We've got to stay bold and fearless in our witness. And to do that, we should ask the Spirit to fill us for bold testimony to Jesus. Our next application. Verse 8, the Spirit of God filled Peter to testify to the truth and power of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, buried, risen, ascended. And Jesus told us, Luke eleven thirteen. if you then who are evil, Luke eleven thirteen. if you then who are evil, Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Friend, when is the last time you asked Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you would be bold in your witness to Jesus at work and in your neighborhood and at school? Time and again throughout Acts, we see that the Spirit of God fills the people of God to testify to the gospel of God. Evangelistic boldness is not rooted in personality or temperament. It's rooted in the Spirit of God who glorifies the Son of God and fills the people of God so that they will do the same. If your prayer life is dominated by all your own feelings, 
and felt needs and hurts. And those feelings and felt needs and hurts crowd out your desire for the Spirit to make you bold in evangelism so others can see their sins forgiven as you have seen yours forgiven, then it is no wonder that you chicken out every time you get an opportunity to speak the gospel to your friends and family. Because your whole prayer life is about you and your feelings and you licking your wounds and you wondering why other people don't treat you better. Hey, you got to get over it. Life is about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Your life is about Jesus. Your life is about glorifying Jesus because you're made in God's image and God's about glorifying Jesus. So pray, Christian, pray that the Lord would fill you with God's Spirit to testify with boldness to God's Son for God's glory. Pray that He would get your eyes off of yourself and your problems and your feelings and get your eyes on Christ who was hurt for you far more than you will ever be hurt because of Him. After all, Jesus' resurrection compels us to this. Jesus' resurrection compels us to testify boldly and persistently to who Jesus is. Peter said to the elites in verse 20, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We can't not do evangelism in view of Jesus' resurrection. Are you hurting our feelings? Yes, you are. Are you mistreating us? Yes, you are. Are you abusing your power? Yes, you are. But guess what? You don't see us crying about it, do you? You don't see us getting all disillusioned and hurt and wounded and asking for counseling. Poor me, poor me, poor me. I got detained. I got put in jail for a night. That is not how the apostles felt or thought at all. There is zero self-pity, zero disillusionment about suffering for Jesus in the apostles. How often are we the exact opposite? Poor me, I just got mistreated by religious people because I was faithful and they weren't. And they mistreated me and they abused their power. They've hurt me. I don't know if I can get over it. Don't be like that. I don't know what to tell you, but you, you, you can't be like that. That's not what's modeled for you in Scripture. You've you got to buck up. You've got to trust Jesus you got to get through that, and you've got to be able to see this mistreatment of you for Jesus as Jesus welcoming you into the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what's happening. By the end of this chapter, that's exactly how Peter and John are going to be talking. Luke is going to say about them, they went away rejoicing that they had suffered shame for Jesus' name. After they were beaten to a pulp. They get whipped. There's no self-pity in them. Have you shed blood? 
for Jesus? Have you shed blood because someone else claiming to be religious mistreated you or abused their power over you? We can't not do evangelism in view of Jesus' resurrection. Friend, is that true of you? Is that true of us as a church? Or is it like pulling teeth to get you to talk about Jesus with unbelievers? I fear that with some of us, it's like pulling teeth to get us to talk about Jesus with fellow believers. We Christians should be irrepressible. What have you seen of Christ in Scripture? What have you heard of Him in public preaching and teaching here in this church? Well, where is that in your conversation? Practice talking about these things with us so that you can talk about them clearly and boldly with people who don't yet believe them. Jesus is worthy of that, whatever the risk or cost to you. Jesus is worthy to receive the sacrifice of our comfort, reputation, freedom, and safety. He is worthy of that. The apostles spent a night in prison here, and very soon they're going to sacrifice a whole lot more than that. But Jesus is perfectly righteous, perfectly whole in his integrity, so he is perfectly worthy of our respect and worship and sacrifice. He was rejected by us, for us, before he ever called us to suffer or sacrifice anything for him. And he has promised to make it up to you a hundred times in this life and in the next life, eternal paradise with him and his people. The American dream is not the Christian gospel. And retirement is not an eschatology. Heaven, heaven is an eschatology. And it's worth the sacrifice. We must preach and obey Jesus as exclusive Savior King, rejected by men, but exalted by God, whatever the cost. And it will cost you something. Because the truth of Jesus, as the only Savior King, contradicts the modern cultural consensus. It is always contradicted. Every cultural consensus. Speaking that truth to power costs the apostles, and it'll cost us. It'll cost us rejection, reputation, money, opportunity, ease. It may cost us freedom, safety, even legal troubles. It'll certainly cost you some sorrow. But Jesus was worth it to the apostles. Is he worth it to you? Let's pray together. Lord Christ, we readily confess that you have been far more faithful to us than we have ever been to you. We have sinfully allowed fear of man to silence us. Fear of loss, fear of shame, fear of sorrow, fear of pain. But Lord Jesus, we know that you are worthy of these sacrifices that are often the cost of testifying to you. 
And so we pray, free us from our fear of man and fill us with your Holy Spirit who glorifies Jesus so that what comes out of our mouths would glorify Jesus even if saying it is to our own hurt in this life. Would you do that in our hearts so that Jesus would be glorified in this church and others like it? For Jesus' sake, amen.